0: Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel & Inc. present Janet Nolan, author of Seven and a Half Tons of Steel, Carmen Agraditi, author of 14 Cows for America, and Caroline Brooks-Dubois, author of The Places We Sleep, in conversation with Associate Marketing Manager for Trade, Elise Vincenti. Hi, I'm Elise Vincenti, Associate Marketing Manager for Trade, and this is the Guest Book Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing stories about September 11th for today's children. Our guests are picture book authors Janet Nolan and Carmen Agraditi, and middle grade author Caroline Brooks Dubois. Janet Nolan is an author of fiction, nonfiction, and historical fiction picture books. A lifelong lover of books and seeker of good stories, Janet believes a good story is a gift that keeps on giving. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the Evergreen State College, And a master's degree from the university of illinois at chicago janet lives in illinois with her husband and their dog carmen Agraditi is a new york times best-selling author and has been writing and traveling around the world telling stories for more than 20 years her books have received numerous awards and honors and carmen has performed in many prestigious venues but children are her favorite audience born in havana cuba she came to the united states as a refugee and like most immigrants sees the world from multiple perspectives. Carmen lives in Georgia with her family. And Caroline Brooks Dubois is a poet and educator who received her master's degree of fine arts in poetry from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. After teaching English at the middle school, high school and college levels, she was named a Nashville blue ribbon teacher. Caroline lives in Nashville with her family. Janet, Carmen, and Caroline are here to talk about their books, including Janet's Seven and a Half Tons of Steel, a nonfiction picture book that tells how one of the beams from the World Trade Center towers was turned into the bow of a Navy ship, Carmen's 14 Cows for America, a true story about a young man from Kenya who inspired his Maasai tribe to gift 14 of their precious cows to the United States after hearing of the attacks, and Caroline's The Places We Sleep a middle-grade coming-of-age novel in verse about Abby and her military family as they experience the tumultuous aftermath of 9-11. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Guest Book Podcast.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Hi. Uh, thank you, three, for joining me here today to discuss your stories about 9-11. Let's get this conversation started by hearing about the inspiration for your stories first. Uh, can you each tell a little bit more about your book and what inspired it? Caroline, why don't you go first?
1: Thanks, Elise. I'm excited to be here and talk books with all of you. So my novel is about 12-year-old Abby, who is the new kid at school again. Uh, Tennessee is her family's latest stop in a series of moves based on her dad's work in the Army. But for the first time, Abby has found a real friend, a forever friend, Camille, loyal Camille. And then it is September 11th, and Abby's aunt goes missing in the World Trade Center. And Abby's family is faltering in the aftermath of 9-11, and her father is preparing for active duty. So Abby must cope as her world is crumbling. So she, she turns to art. And as far as the inspiration, um, in the years following, the numerous years following 9-11, both of my brother's and my brother-in-law were all called into active duty. Um, and so that is one of the, the kind of like the foundational pieces of the story. And the other is just as a teacher, I really uh, was inspired to try to create a character that um, represents the multifaceted teenager who can at one point be, you know, worried about their complexion or their hair or, or um, being embarrassed, but at the same time as dealing with the complexities of the world, especially in uh, trauma.
2: And I'm happy to be here. I'm Janet Nolan, and my book is Seven and a Half Tons of Steel, which is a nonfiction picture book about um, a Navy ship, the USS New York, whose bow contains seven and a half tons of steel that came from a beam in the World Trade Center towers. And I first, the inspiration I heard about the ship. Um, well, I was driving in my car, probably listening to NPR, and I heard a story about the ship. And, um, I was just really struck in the moment, um, that something so powerful, uh, and positive had emerged from such a tragic event. So that was the, uh, that was where the idea came from for the story. And, um, what followed then was having to do the research and, um, to tell, to tell the tale of this ship.
3: And Carmen, what about you? First, I'm just glad to be in such fine literary company. Mm -hmm. September 11th is a date that, for many of uh, of us, um, of my generation and the generation before us, is is is, has a marker, sort of the where were you when JFK was shot? It carries that same sort of um, gut level emotion to it, and this particular story, literally ended up on my doorstep. About five or six months after 9-11, I opened my door to pick up the New York Times. I don't live in Manhattan or in Brooklyn or in any of the boroughs. I live in Georgia, but get the times. The gray lady has always come to me at the doorstep and it's how I start the day with my coffee. And that day, a very strange image was on the cover. There were Maasai women and I, because i had had a former interest in the Maasai I knew who they were, and they had those extraordinary red, you know, costumes. They were holding up signs, these women. And one prominent one said, we give these cows to help you, September 11 tragedy. And I thought, what? Now I remember just sinking onto the stoop and reading the story of how this distant people had been the very first to respond to this, this wound, this national wound, by giving us something the Maasai have never historically given ever in fact they historically were known as cattle raiders um they gave us 14 cows a tribe of 500 people or so gave an enormous amount of wealth to us to help us heal it was it it was stunning and that's how the story began then trying to find the young man who made it happen a young maasai warrior
0: so, uh Janet and Carmen, as both of your books are nonfiction uh, what was your research process like writing them? For
2: me, it was pretty much a two tiered process. Um, the first was I had to learn the historical events of 9 nine eleven and then the technical aspects of shipbuilding, which I knew nothing about um, so that was that was a pretty big lift to learn all of that and the second part was much more personal i I knew a fact. I knew a beam had been used in a Navy ship's bow, but I had to figure out what that meant, uh, what it meant to the men and women who built the ship, what it meant to the men and women who serve on the ship and what it means to us as a nation. And I took a while, but I found those answers as I often do in stories. I heard stories about shipbuilders who delayed retirement so they could continue working on the ship. And I heard stories about service personnel who requested transfer so they could serve on the ship. And what I heard again and again were stories of people who served in honor of, they served in honor of someone that they lost in 9-11, they served in honor of New York, and they served in honor of our nation. So um, melding the historical, the technical, and the emotional was, um, was my challenge in writing the book.
0: And Carmen, what was your research process like writing 14 Cows?
3: It was in a way uh, more on the lines of being a biographer of, um, of a living person. Wilson Kimeli Naoma is the young man who was instrumental in making the gift of 14 cows happen from the Maasai to the U.S., And the way it happened is that he was in Manhattan. He was a Stanford University medical student. He had gone there to be a doctor to eventually return to his tribe in Kenya. And when he was on this school trip, the towers fell. And one of the things that he said in the interview to me was, I'm a Maasai and I am a Maasai warrior. It had very specific meaning. And he said, I knew what the police officers and the firemen and the, the ambulances, basically all the personnel were doing While well, everyone else was running away. They were running towards this scene of, of this atrocity basically. And that he ran too, because he said that is what he was trained to do, but there was no one left to save. And then in this following spring, he went back to Kenya and he told them the story. I'm telling you this because this is essentially, this was his story. So he returned. How he went to the elders and said, "I have one calf." I mean, he was he was an orphan. His wealth was tied up in one calf. I would like to give it to the Americans, and that began the snowballing sort of of. Them. Then the elders said, "Well, we want to give." Then they went to the tribe, and someone else said, "We want to give." When the story to me occurred, and what occurred to me wasn't on that day on the stoop. None of us were writing material then. None of us were creating anything out of this. We were all too we were walking wounded in a way. It was a number of years later, but I took notes. I kept that newspaper and then I started researching the day. And that's, that's the process of just researching what had happened here. And then um, when I had a rough draft, I decided that I had to find Camelli, And that was a, a different path
0: how was it uh, collaborating with Kimeli? Um, I'm sure he was able to provide kind of more personal touches uh, telling you his own experience about going back to Kenya and telling them, you know, what he had experienced.
3: Yes. Well, it was interesting because in a way it was um, a reverse process of what I would have done as an interview. If I'd been able to find him first, finding him was not easy. It took locating the New York times, Reporter who at that point was no longer just a writer. He had he was now a bureau chief, and then he was was on the move. Um, he had told his story to the AP. It had gone on the wire. It had been in the the BBC had picked it up. It was in the New York Times. So there was so much material from which to piece the story, his own story. And there's so many pieces to leave out. So the first version of the story, by the way, it's the seventh draft of a first draft. Um, that one, the one that went to, to Peachtree, um, was really the story that was created from the from sources that, that were out there. When I was able to speak to him um, and read him the book, and I actually read it to him from my car on the cell phone, and I was shaking so much that my the phone kept hitting my cheek <laughs> because I thought, he's going to hate this, and, and this is his story. And he said, no, 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 I'm not telling it. I just want someone to tell it, but I... But as, we, as I read it to him, he said, how did you know that? And I said, I'm old. I research. <laughs> and I said, but is there anything that's wrong? Well, it ended up that there was, for example, I had the wrong greeting. I was using a Swahili word instead of a Ma greeting. And, um, so, and that was important. It may seem like a small thing. It's not. That's huge. And anyone who picked up the book who had ever been there or who knew anything about, uh, about the Maasai would have recognized it. Um, in the illustrations, Tom, who was so brilliant, I know we're going to talk about him, but one of his first two-page spreads done in pastels, vast, huge, because you know it's shot down. That image was of the cows. It was exquisite. It had taken him weeks. They were the wrong cows. <laughs> Kimberly looked at me and said, "They're beautiful, but they're, those aren't our cows." And so that's why it's so important to have. See, I believe we can tell one another stories with when we are willing to do all the work and he was, he was fabulous. And his story in the back, I think added his own sort of, he had his two pages of a sort of autobiographical notes that add to the story itself. Uh, The story was more poetic and he wanted it that way. He wanted to keep it sparse and he filled in other details. So it was, it's, it was very daunting to tell the personal story of someone, but he, he was a champ.
0: Caroline, uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but could you provide a bit more about um, how you pulled from your own personal experiences while writing this fictional story? You know, I know authors, you know, always find ways to pull in their own experiences when writing fiction um, and nonfiction as well.
1: Sure, thanks, Elise. While living through my brother's deployments, I actually did journal as a way of dealing with shock and grief and kind of processing that as well as processing 9-11. I was also pregnant at the time, and I just remember feeling a tremendous fear of bringing a child into the world. Um, there was this sense of not knowing what the next day would hold, and it's hard to describe that to um you know, the, t- the students that I teach today who really do not have a full understanding, um, like some of us do, of 9-11 who lived through it. And so, I journaling was a way for me to uh, process and cope during a difficult time. And I also, like my character, I began to um, you know, try to put together a character who has this overlapping moment of national tragedy, but yet also, um, what if your birthday is on 9-11? What if you were a teenager and coming of age at that period? What does that do? How does that shape who you are? And so I began to write in a voice and each piece was a poem. um, And it was Abby, this student who was new at a school, and I related to her because I moved schools at such a momentous time in my youth also. And remember with clarity, being the outsider, those all eyes on you kind of moment. And I think most um, teens have that feeling of being an outsider. And so it, it came through just several personal resonances with the, uh, with the era and um, just being a creative writer, trying to. Create a um, a story through it.
0: You also approached writing your story very creatively by writing it in verse. Um, You know, I I mentioned earlier that you have a degree in poetry, um, but is that what influenced your decision to write the book this way, or how did you come to decide to write it in verse?
1: Well, yes, probably. I had studied poetry. I'd been writing poetry as uh, you know from from childhood, essentially, and was. A big fan of verse novels, you know, some of the greats like Helen, Ellen Hopkins and Karen Hess and Kwame Alexander. A big fan of them. And when I first started writing Abby's story, they really were just kind of scenes or snapshots. And I didn't really think of it as a novel. I, I felt like I was kind of exploring this voice of, again, this kind of overlapping coming of age with 9 uh, 11. And it allows you to tell a visual and a verbal story that is just um, unlike everything, unlike traditional prose or fiction, uh, that I think brings some levity to difficult subjects. Uh, it, you know, you, you let your reader fill in the gaps and um, you chase the music of the verse and the imagery and the imagery is, can speak and can deliver a powerful emotional message without necessarily having to um, talk a lot about 9-11 it's truly the backdrop to my story and so it, it just turned into a novel I think at some point um, and then in the publication process it turned into a, a historical novel because it took me a few years to publish it and so yeah poetry was just my um, my medium at the time. And since then I've written some more traditional prose novels, but I'm currently working on a, another book in verse. And I just think I really like how, um, poetry is one way on the page visually kind of like picture books, which, uh, Janet and Carmen do, but, but it's also a, an oral experience. And so it does another thing when you read it aloud. And so I think it just felt like the right, um, right genre, right way of telling this story.
2: Can I just say, Caroline, when I read your book, and it's lovely, I really enjoyed it. The verse became like a beat that stayed with me. So when I was reading your book, and when I was not reading your book, I almost, I felt like I was in that rhythm, it stayed with me. um, It's just like a movement. So it was really beautiful.
1: It was really beautiful to read. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Well, I, uh, mutual admiration for both of your books. I'm a huge fan of picture books and especially nonfiction picture books and all of your research just floors me. So yeah. So thank you.
0: Well, and I appreciate Caroline that you, uh, you talked about your book is kind of a nine 11 is a, a launching point for the story. Um, and I think that's something all three of those stories have in common. And kind of moving into the illustration component for Carmen and Janet's books, uh, you both have the unique commonality of having Thomas Gonzalez illustrate both of your books. Um, Could you provide a little bit more insight into how his illustrations worked alongside your writing? Um, Janet, I know, um, you know, at the very beginning of your book, there's a, you know, a three spread introduction um, that Tom had contributed to your story. So can you give a little bit more detail about that?
2: Uh, I Well, first, I was just so lucky to work with Tom Gonzalez. I think he's just a brilliant, talented artist. Yeah, um, I, I think that's one of the most compelling things about the story, that he it has a silent beginning. Uh, the first three spreads... There is no text. The first image is of a child looking up at the sky, and there's just a plane, an airplane in the distance. And the next spread is a very busy uh, New York street, and you see an airplane in, reflected, airplane reflected in the mirrors, the side view mirrors of the cars on the street. And the next image is of a is the airplane hitting one of the towers. And I think that. By looking at those images, it takes you emotionally to the place of 9-11 without any words, um, because there really, in many ways, are are no words. And so visually, I think it takes the reader into the space um, to read the book. And and I also think that he, he, uh, well, he's also did fantastic research to get everything accurate. And then another component of the book is Hurricane Katrina hit while the ship was being built and he completely changed the color palette. Everything is different. It's these orange, it's uh, greens and blues sort of swirling out in the ocean. So I thought that was a really nice way to shift within the book because the story shifts and then the color palette shifts as well. So I, I, I think I was just really fortunate to work with him on it.
0: Yeah, I love the way uh, Tom approaches color palettes, um, you know, like in 14 Cows for America, you get those vibrant, you know, reds um, that I think are so ingrained in what we
3: see of the Basai tribe. And also the colors of Kenya. And yes, Janet, isn't his work just luscious? I mean, he, see, oh, Tom, I'm going to out something about Tom here, Um Tom is a portrait artist and his portraiture is, I mean, he has his stuff in galleries. He is extraordinary. Working with him is just such a joy and especially um, his love of detail and of research. And by the way, the fact that those were the wrong cows was not um, was actually those were Kenyan cows. They just weren't specifically that tribes. And that's why we needed someone like Camelli. We needed him to be the voice, but back to Tom, the way he looks at a story is so, it's like cinematography almost. And you see it in the books. And his sense of, of the person when he has to draw a person. I mean, and he does the same thing with machinery and so forth. But his people, you feel like you can reach out and touch them. And um, the thing I was going to out him about, though the two cool things. Um, one is that we were refugee children together. And we grew up in the same sort of refugee hood. Um, His dad fixed televisions. My dad was a steel worker. And when I went to his house, he was just a couple years older than me, but enough for me to be the like obnoxious, you know, kid that was his little sister's friend. And I would he would draw, um, he was always sitting at the table drawing, always, always, always copying comic books. And I would go and I'd I'd like, I'd just bug him. I'd lean into the green formica table and I'd say, Tom, Tom, draw me a chicken. He wouldn't even look up. He'd draw a chicken and throw the paper over and not even look at me. Tom, Tom, draw me. And so when all this happened, when the story with Camille came together, it happened because our mothers were at a funeral for an elderly Cuban person. And over the person's casket, they decided that Tom and I needed to work together. Because as my mother put it, you know, Carmen is working on a little book. And doesn't Tom do? And his mother goes, the little pictures? We can do the book together? (laughs) Oh, yes, I am not making this up. That is how we ended up on this story. That's how Tom came into book illustration. Leave it to moms to be scheming together for their kids. Yeah, they were Cuban sort of... um, Creative midwives or something—they they birthed you know him into this into this, and he's he is wonderful. What's also surprising, I think, and I, I wonder what, if you want to say something about this, Janet, uh, is that a lot of people look at Tom's work and they think this is computer generated. It isn't. It is not. It that's what's you you look at his work and you think, but then you see we've seen the actual art, mm-hmm. and um, it's wow.
2: His attention to detail and I also think it's different for both of us because you knew him personally. I didn't know him and I didn't meet him until after the book was finished. So and
3: you know, we've since met and become In friend. all fairness though, no, I should tell you, we hadn't seen each other in 30 some years. Oh, okay. Since we were little since we were kids, we hadn't seen each other.
2: He's just um, a joy to work with. So I uh, thank you, Peachtree, for matching. Yes. for yes. matching
0: us.
3: Yeah.
0: What she said. <laughs> um, Caroline, you know, I know you talked about, um, you know, this, this combination of this national tragedy with personal experience. Um, and I know Abby starts her period on the day of 9-11. Um, how, how did you come to kind of meld those two, uh, you know, quote unquote tragedies, um, together in and kind of abby's own personal story and coming of age story
1: well again thanks that's i wasn't sure about talking about this question but i'm glad you brought it up because i think it's a topic that needs to be in books from my childhood it was in one book it was in judy balloon's one book and so again it kind of just came naturally and but in a very thematic way in my head Um, and it's kind of complicated and strange but uh the the first title of the book uh was what's her face and um i think i just started to think about identity and this kind of coming of age moment and who you become and i thought about uh how you know getting your period uh leads to your ability to create life (laughs) and uh when you so choose and when you desire if you so desire and art is about creation and I just thought a lot about how in life we have the choices to create and we have the choices to destroy or to bring people down or to um do destructive things, to uh, not be tolerant and not be peaceful. And so in my head, I just kept thinking about Abby um, becoming a woman and gaining her voice and choosing kindness and choosing tolerance to those that she uh, was in school with. But yet it was, there were some challenging times in the South after 9-11. And um, there is some Islamophobia that occurs in her school. And so she chooses uh, to create and to uh, be someone who becomes, moves from um, a bystander to an upstander. And so in my head, all of these themes are somewhat related, but it, it definitely was that initial moment or that seed of just something very personal, overlapping with something completely out of your control that coincides at the same time.
0: 9 11 is obviously a very difficult topic to discuss, um, especially with young people who were either too young to remember or for children who were not even born yet, um, as today's young generation is. So, how did each of you balance writing about such a heavy topic, uh, but in a manner that children could relate to or understand?
2: I think I did that um, in Seven and a Half Tons of Steel, as I said before, by following the story of the beam and the metal and really showing how it transforms and how it becomes something different. And I think that is something hopeful. I I never wanted to write a book specifically about either 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina. I, I mean, those are stories that could be told. I didn't personally want to tell those exact stories. I wanted to tell a different story. So I think by showing something being um, recast into a different shape and rebuilt gave me a structure and a way to tell a a story about 9-11 that didn't stay in 9-11.
1: I relate to what you're saying, Janet. And I think uh, the way I think of it is just in my particular story to be character first. Um, there is the grief and the loss, and her mother is her sister her mother's sister is in the world trade towers um, but she is still a middle schooler, and um, she has this amazing friend she's just met and so she, so I continue to follow her story, her personal story uh with the with the deeper, darker things that are occurring um, and, uh, build hope into the story with, uh, with friendship. So, um, yeah, just the friendship between characters. And I think that is something that children can relate to, even if, uh, they do not understand the historical context. It's something that I think of like a Rudy Cepeda's novel, um, about the Holocaust. I think that they make those connections through the story, they follow the story, but then it ignites a curiosity about the event, And so they might relate more personally to a story, but then yet they can um, uh, find ways to understand the, the, the era or the um, incident that is being written about as well.
3: I think what you're both saying is maybe is a chorus that I can join my voice to on uh, uh, the whole notion of the beam being repurposed um, that hope and so forth can come from this, this terrible thing. For me, it came in a really strange way. Right around that time, I got a dog. Stay with this. It's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did not want a dog, I thought. But let's just say through the vagaries of life, I ended up with this little fox terrier. And when I got him, so much was happening in the world at that time. We were post 9-11. So much is happening now that leaves us at times sucker punched. When I took the dog, they gave me some paperwork with him and and he wasn't a full breed, but they had like his vet information. It had his birthday on there. September 12th. His name was George Bailey. He was George Bailey because George Bailey always sees the best in life. George Bailey knows that with every September 11, there's a September 12th. We have survived as a species because somewhere I think deeply within every one of us, there is an empath. There are people who create and there are people who destroy and those who create have an empathic drive. And it shows up in all these stories. And I think it's what will save us in the end. I hope
0: and I think, you know, uh, a lasting takeaway from your books is that while they do detail serious topics, um, they do all ultimately emphasize positive messages of hope and kindness and community. Um, And, you know, I think those are all important things to point out. Um, So how, how did you approach, how did you approach making that such an important message in your book? Did it happen organically, um, or was that something that you were kind of deliberately trying to get at towards the end of your story?
2: I think for me, it happened organically by mentioning, I, there were so many different people that are mentioned in this story, the truck drivers who, who drive the beam, the, the people in the foundry who melt the metal, the shipbuilders and all the different trades within the shipbuilding and then the service people who serve on the ship. So I think that sort of by showing the, the breadth of expertise required and that it, it becomes a collective effort um, that went into building this ship. And it was only by working together that um, something so powerful and massive could be built. So I think that sense of community is revealed through process. Mm -hmm. And the process is the various people who were involved in building the ship.
1: I think uh, for me, like I said before, my, my character was always an artist. Um, And so there was this uh, portion of her, I knew there was going to be hope in this story. Um, I knew I felt hopeful. I knew, um, you know, when you send someone away uh, to war or into conflict, you have hope Um, when you, no first responders. You just have to live with hope. And so I knew my character had hope and I knew the story was going to have hope in it, but I didn't exactly know where that was going, how that was going to evolve when I began writing it. Um, she does become friends with, uh, a, a character that is a somewhat secondary character in my story, but I feel like my character is an, a work in progress. She's human. She is, uh, not a savior. She is not, like I say, I said, she does become an upstander, but she's kind of on the brink of friendship with this other student uh, who is also new, but who experiences some bullying um, in the days post 9-11 in the South. And um, I definitely, with the help of my sensitivity reader and with the help of my editor um, at Holiday House, amazing editor, Sally Morgridge, I, I tweaked that relationship to definitely Uh, make art be the bridge between these students who were uh, different but had the commonality of um, art and friendship. And so I, I intentionally worked it into the story to make sure it gave readers hope and positivity uh, because it, it is a dark story, you know, but, and things are happening, but uh, middle grade readers want to hear that and need to hear those stories to process. It's a safe space to process events. Like you said, Katrina, my own children have lived through a hundred year flood and now in a tornado and now a pandemic children need these stories. And I think that um, uh, you have to find a way to build that into your story. And so that's what I
3: did. I take it, I guess, a somewhat different approach only in that the story tells itself for me in a picture book and everyone has a process. This particular story already had a narrative. I mean, a definitive narrative. But, you know, just like a song can be played on a flare, on a clarinet or on a flute or on a piano, or on a, how you tell it, the tale is in the telling. So what are you trying to say? And in storytelling, when I'm coaching, I'll say... You remember Jack Palance in City Slickers, and nearly everyone can remember him. And in the the movie, he says, if you haven't seen the movie, you know, the secret to happiness is you have to find the most important thing. Well, the secret to a good story, I think, is you have to find out what's the most important thing. What is the thing that is driving the story? What is the thing that is hurtling you through, and what is... What is extraneous? What is unimportant? What is detritus that can simply just wash away as you go flying through it? And I will tell you, I struggled with the ending on this one. I, I thought, what is it? What are we saying? Why is this so important? Why has this affected me as a writer, as a creative person so deeply? And how can I get that to the reader? Because otherwise, if I can't figure it out, how are they going to figure it out? And I had gotten the Carson McCullers Fellowship down in South Georgia and Columbus University. I had one week. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And then one day I sat down and I realized that it really was going to tell itself if I could just get out of the way and stop trying to rationalize the story, intellectualize the story. And I went through it and wrote it again. And it ended with because um, we got 14 cows for America because there's no nation so big it cannot be wounded, nor are people so small they can't offer mighty comfort. Really, the story was about big needs little, especially it's the story of the lion and the mouse. It's Aesop's fable. It's We just keep telling the same stories over and over again. So I think for me, it was that process of letting the story finally go enough that I could let it figure out what was the most important thing for me.
2: Well, it works. It's beautiful. Your your book is beautiful, Carmen. Oh, I
3: would say the same to you, and to Carolyn and the people who are listening are like, oh, seriously, you guys? We can't
1: help you <laughs> like each other's work.
3: We're mutual <laughs>
1: fans. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, genuinely. So, why do you think stories about September 11th and post 9/11 events, or even stories that detail tragedy in general? are important to make available for children today?
2: I'll try this. Um, I think that uh, because my, you know, our readers were not even born um, in 2001, but 9-11 lives in our collective consciousness. um, And we all live today in a post 9-11 world. And it resonates Still today, events that are happening in the news today are tied to the events of 20 years ago. And so there is no not being in a post 9-11 world. It, it is our, our world and it is our reality. And it, it affects how, how we live our lives, how we live our lives today. And the choices that we made then and the choices that we're continuing to make are all impacted by that, the events of that day.
1: That was so nicely said, and I um, I think I'll just, like, from my teacher hat, I know that when I put nonfiction in front of a student, certain, not your nonfiction, <laughs> but an article, and I want to teach them something, uh, I see their heads droop, and I see their uh, attention sometimes uh, wane, but when you put a story in front of them, which both of yours are stories, Something happens. Um, they they see one another. They listen to one another. They grow their perspective. And, you know, there's the idea of windows and mirrors. They see through others' eyes. And I think that, um, you know, currently my students right now are reading this lovely book called October Morning, which is about Matthew Shepard's murder, which occurred many years ago in the 90s. But um, and I, I wasn't sure when I thought to bring it back into the classroom, but I think there's, we need a lot of tolerance and kindness right now, and students are turning the pages, and they're very much in it, and it's about a very dark event, but through amazing poetry, and so I just think that uh, difficult, difficult subjects, children need to hear about it, and a story is just a safe, uh, good way to, to share and to teach and to let them experience things.
3: You know, I remember when my girls were growing up reading "Let the Celebrations Begin," and it's about uh, it's told about um, in the voice of a child who's in I believe it's the child who's in a concentration camp. And you think, what? Julie Vivas, of course, who's was just incredible. If you uh, that particular illustrator, and her work. I mean, it just it almost it was almost in conflict with the story, except there were moments of humor. And you thought, how could you have humor in there? But it was there because it was necessary because you needed the relief. And because the reader who was the adult was reading a different story than the story the child was receiving. And so depending on, for example, Carolyn, you're writing for older children. And so there is a certain latitude that you have because you know there's more that they can tolerate more information. And Janet, you know, when we were writing for picture book, We're looking really K-5, uh, K-4-ish maybe. Um, And we may be introducing difficult topics and they're important, but it's such a fine balance between introducing children to the harshness of this world, of this beautiful, this exquisite, of this cruel, extraordinary planet. And at the same time, preserving something that many now feel is unimportant, and I don't, and I don't think you all do either, which is the innocence of children. They need to preserve some of that for a while. So how do we introduce them? I think these hard stories, when we also show the uh, what Mr. Rogers called it, look for the helpers, is that what he would say? Look for the helpers. Um, we tell the children, "You know, look around. Look in this terrible story. Do you see it? Do you see the light? Do you see the points of light that are still there in the darkest moment? Do you see September 12th?
0: It's so uh, beautifully said. Um, and I think, you know, all three of your books, you know, emphasize that, that point, we're all in this together, experiencing this together and overcoming this together, which I think is um, a beautiful sentiment. Um, So uh, what do you hope uh, your readers take away from your stories? Uh, You know, 14 cows for America, seven and a half tons of steel and the places we sleep.
1: I would say for mine that just, um, I know I've said the word creativity a lot, (laughs) but uh, being creative, uh, finding something that you are drawn to can battle your sense of helplessness in the face of things that we can't control. Um, And I also think specifically of my students because they are my readers sometimes. And I think that I, just like in the novel, I want them to look around and get to know the people that are share a classroom with them, learn their names. And that's kind of what I mentioned earlier where the original title of my book was what's her face. It was a lot about identity. And when you know someone's name, Um, and I stress it in the first, we just went through the first week of school, and I stress the importance of learning the correct name, the correct pronunciation, the correct pronouns that someone wants to use. When you know someone's name, you treat them with dignity, and you have a much more, uh, you're going to uh, treat them the way that you would want to be treated, essentially, and so I think that I would just want them to see themselves and know that the person sitting beside them is a lot like them, whether they know it or not. And so learn their name.
2: I would say that the takeaway for me is that they could have put this metal anywhere on the ship and they put it in the bow, which is the foremost part of the boat or the ship. And it's what cuts the water and it's what leads the way. So if a beam can become a bow then I think anything's possible. Anyone and anything can be transformed. So with that, there's always room for hope and for transformation. That's what I would hope readers would take away.
3: All right, well, I can't add much to what I've said other than if I wanted the children to have something to take with them, I generally believe when we let these stories go, they're not ours anymore. They take what they want. They transform them to things we never even meant for them to understand from the book. But if, I, if it were up to me, I would want them to believe that no matter how terrible, how absolutely dark, stygian that moment is in your life, there is someone somewhere who is watching, who is listening. And however small, And they'll be there. You don't even know they're there. But they can be there. You're not alone. What did we discover September 11th when this little tribe in Kenya stepped forward into the daylight, it must have been horrifying, of the world's media? That we, this enormous country that was shell-shocked, who didn't expect anyone to come to our aid, we go to everybody else's. That we were not alone. You're not.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Carmen, Caroline, and Janet uh, for telling uh, a little bit more about each of your books. Um, you know, I definitely appreciated hearing more about the, the inspiration for your stories, the message of your stories, um, and why they're so important to continue to share with readers, um, you know, even 20 years after uh, 9-11 Uh, So lastly, uh, since this is the guest book podcast and we always ask our guests at the very end, how would you like to sign the guest book today?
2: This is Janet. First, I want to say thank you to the teachers, librarians and booksellers who champion all of our books and to the readers who read them. And I also want to say thank you for your service uh, to the men and women who serve on the USS New York.
1: And I think I will, uh, my protagonist, Abby, would say, um, make art, choose kindness,
3: choose tolerance. And I would close by saying, um, well, first, thank you for letting the three of us be together today to share our stories, Peachtree. And my sign-off, I guess, is um, no matter how small you are, you can be of service. So don't ever think that your little, your little grain of sand can't make a big difference.
0: Thank you, uh, Carmen, Janet, and Caroline for joining me at the guest book today. Um, I look forward to hearing and reading new stories from each and every one of you and look forward to seeing more in the future. Thank you, Elise. You were wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so
2: much. Bye.